Well, this uh, sermon today is a standalone because it is our Vision Sunday. And if you have your Bibles, please turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse 1, I'll be reading from the ESV translation. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus." And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. What does it take to turn this world upside down? Well, the first thing it takes is for us to be people of courage. It takes courage... To shake things up. It takes courage to turn the world upside down. The Apostle Paul was a man of great courage. He showed a tremendous amount of bravery when he went into the city of Thessalonica and he went straight into the synagogues. Paul, when he went to the synagogue, was going to his enemy, the Jewish leaders. And if you read a few chapters before Acts chapter 17, you will find quickly that many Jewish leaders couldn't stand Paul. Because Paul was one of them, but now that he was changed by the grace of God, he ended up telling more and more Jews about Jesus, and many came to faith in Jesus Christ. If you just look at Paul's first missionary journey... In the second part of Acts, you will first find that he went to the island of Cyprus. And there on that island, he was opposed by the Jewish false prophet Bar-Jesus in Acts 13. Leaving the island of Cyprus, he then went on to Pisidian Antioch, where the Jewish leaders of of that town became jealous over him because the large crowds that came to hear him preach. These Jewish leaders, they ended up contradicting the things that Paul spoke about. And they also blasphemed the Lord Jesus. And they, and they instigated a persecution against Paul. So this forced Paul to leave Poseidon Antioch. And then he goes into Iconium, the next city. And at Iconium, he stirred up a group of Jewish leaders. And these Jewish leaders were upset with him and were jealous over his success. And they ended up trying to convince the minds of the Gentile believers to be against Paul. This essentially kicked Paul out of town. And then he fled from Iconium to Lystra, where he nearly lost his life because of Jewish persecution. 
After Lystra, he went into Philippi. And when he was in Philippi, he was physically beaten by the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders. And that forced him into Thessalonica, where we get to Acts chapter 17. You would think that Paul, at this time in his life and ministry, would have gotten the point that the Jewish leaders really don't like me. (laughs) But that didn't seem to change his mind and change his mission. But instead, he went straight to the synagogue where the Jewish leaders were. And it said that he was there at least three Sabbath days, talking to them and ministering to them. This shows an incredible amount of bravery to go straight to the enemy and to talk to them. You see, what Paul did is he ran to the roar. You may not know this, but anytime there's a group of prey that approaches a male lion, and the male lion will yell out or give out this loud roar, what do the prey do? They typically go the opposite way of the roar. They run away from the roar because a lion's roar would scare anybody, wouldn't it? It would terrify any of us. A male lion roar, the king of the jungle, I'd be terrified if I heard this loud roar. So the prey, like any one of us, if we heard a loud roar, we would run away from the roar. But guess what happens when the prey runs away from the roar? There's a group of lionesses waiting to devour them on the opposite side. You see the male lion and the, and the female lioness, they work together this plan that when the male lion yells out this loud roar, the prey run away from the roar and they run into a pack of lionesses who are faster than the male lion and they devour the prey. It would be better if the prey ran to the roar instead of away from the roar because their chances of survival would be much greater. Paul, he ran to the roar, not away from the roar. As our culture and as our society continues to drift further from God, how do we as Christians shake things up? We don't run away from the noise because the noise is getting louder. We run to it. We run to the roar. We don't hide, we don't cower, we don't live in fear of all the change that's happening around us. But we roll up our sleeves and we run to the roar. What do I mean by this? Well, let's imagine that you have a child in public school right now. And your kid is being taught things that you really, frankly, wish they weren't being taught. So do you just kind of allow it to happen, or do you run to the roar? What can you do to run to the roar? Well, you can go to the teacher and ask, can you help me understand what's being taught in the classroom? And if they can't give you a good answer, then go to the administration of the school and ask the principal, hey, walk me through this. Can you help me understand what's being taught here? If they can't give you a good reason, then go to the higher-ups. And if they can't, then go to the school board and ask the school board, what's going on here? That's how you run to the roar. You don't just cower and let things happen. You run to it. You may have an adult child who you raised in the Lord and raised in the church and they've drifted from it. And they've gone the opposite way of what you taught them. And now they're teaching your grandkids not from the word of God, but they're teaching them other things. 
And they're disbehaving and being disobedient. As a grandparent, it's, it's hard to have those conversations with your adult child. But should you have the conversation? Yes. You run to the roar and you ask your adult child, okay, can you help me understand you know, what you're teaching your kids, and what, have you thought of it this way? You might be an employee, and your employer is asking you to do things that go against your conviction. Well, do you just cave in because your employer is asking you to do it? Do you quit, or do you run to the roar? And do you ask him, okay, sir or ma'am, this is my conviction here, and you're asking me to go against my conviction. I just simply can't do it. That's a way that we run to the roar. You may have a friend that are posting, that's posting things on social media that are just irritating you, and you're just frustrated, and you just want to say, what are you doing posting that information? Instead of getting angry and irritated at your friend, why don't you just send them a message or call them and say, can you help me understand your point of view? Because I'm kind of struggling here. You know, seeing what you're writing, and I'm having trouble understanding where you're coming from. That's how we run to the roar as opposed to just sitting back and letting things happen. Because if we just sit back and we don't run to the roar, things will get worse. If we remain silent, things won't improve. So what does it take for Christians to shake this world up and to turn the world upside down? It takes bravery. It takes courage. The other thing it takes is it takes compassion. The reason why Paul kept going to the synagogues, to the people who were mistreating him, is because he loved them. Romans chapter 9, he described it this way. He said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. The moment that Paul became a Christian, the Holy Spirit entered him, he realized the kind of change that he needed. He began to think differently. He began to live differently and act differently. He began to love other people instead of himself. He began to live with purpose. And because of that, he wanted his fellow brothers and sisters, his Jewish family and his friends, to know what he knew, to experience what he experienced. He even got to the point in his life where he said, I wish that I could change places with my brothers and sisters so that they could know what I know. I would even be willing to be cursed from God so that they could experience what I've experienced. You see the kind of compassion that Paul had for these Jewish people, the Jewish leaders who were mistreating him? He also wrote in Romans 10.1, he said, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them that they may be saved. He's talking about the Jewish leaders. He's saying, my heart, my desire, my prayer is that they would become Christians. And they would experience what I've experienced. That's what compassion is all about. And we are called not only to run to the roar as Christians, but as we run to the roar, we are called to be people of compassion and love. And as we speak truth, we speak it in love. After all, it was Jesus who said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I had a, a young girl recently come up and tell me that she was being teased on a playground. And she said, this is what's going on. And I said, well, I think, and she was saying it's a group of boys who were teasing her. And I said, I think that these boys might have a crush on you. 
Because usually when little boys tease little girls, they have crushes on them. But she said, well, they're kind of teasing me. And I said, well, you need to stand up for yourself and just tell them, stop teasing me. And if they keep teasing you, then go tell the teacher. And as she said, well, I guess you're right. And I said, but you know what else we need to do? We need to pray for them. We need to pray for them. And we prayed for those kids who were teasing her. In the same way, Jesus calls you and me to pray for those who are on the opposite side of the spectrum, who think completely different than we do. We need to pray for them. We need to love them. We need to show them compassion. It's easy for us to be angry at those who think completely different than us. But may I remind you that if they don't have the Holy Spirit in them, they won't see it. They'll continue to think differently than you and me. They'll continue to live differently than you and me. But until they have Holy Spirit in them, they will never see it. So that's why we should have the heart of Paul and have a heart of compassion for our lost neighbors, our lost family members. Because after all, they are lost. And if they don't know what we know, and if they're not changed by the grace of Jesus Christ, they will be in hell for the rest of eternity. Now, I hate to say it, sometimes we may want that for some of our enemies. But that's not the way to go. The way to go is to run to the roar and to be people of compassion. The third thing it takes for us to shake up the world is it takes conversation. And in Acts 17, verse 2, it said that Paul went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, and he explained and he proved that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. What I love about what Paul did here when he went into the synagogue is he didn't preach at them. He didn't necessarily preach to them and just preach. He didn't have a monologue. He had a dialogue. The word reason is dialogamai in Greek, which is where we get the word dialogue. Paul had a back and forth discussion with these Jewish leaders. I imagine there was some preaching going on. I imagine there was some teaching going on. But I also imagine after he preached and taught, he then had some Q&A, back and forth dialogue. He reasoned with the Jewish leaders. He didn't use entertainment to win them over and persuade them. He didn't express his own opinion or how he felt about the matter. Instead, he explained to them the scriptures. He proved to them that Christ was indeed the Messiah. Because the Jewish leaders, they didn't think Jesus was the Messiah. They were expecting Jesus to come and to lead them into battle against the Roman authorities. When Jesus didn't do that, they said, this isn't our guy. He is not the Messiah. But Paul said, no, he is the Messiah because he was originally going to come to bring peace on earth and goodwill to men, not to bring war. When he comes back, he will bring war. But the first time he came, he was to bring peace. And he explained to them this very thing from the Old Testament. But yet, many of the Jews just didn't quite understand it. What I loved about what Paul did here is he gave proof. He talked to them in a conversation. He probably asked them questions and tried to get understanding from where they were coming from. 
For us to shake the world up, we've got to have conversation with our non-believing friends. We've got to have a dialogue, not a monologue. We don't need to speak at them, but instead we need to speak to them and with them. That's how you win people over. But the problem with our culture is, is many people today in our culture, they, they base their, their truth on how they feel or on opinions and editorials that they read. What Paul did here is he's not saying, this is how I feel today. He's not saying, well, this is my opinion. He's saying, this is God's opinion. This is his word. And as he was reasoning with people, guess what happened? Many people were convinced. As Christians, as we go and run to the roar, and as we show compassion to our non-believing friends, we also need to reason with them. We need to explain and prove to them why Christianity is the best religion out there. Why Jesus changes lives. And there is so much proof about the resurrection of Jesus. There's so much proof about why the Bible is God's word. And as we understand these two critical things, we can then discuss it with our non-believing friends and say, by the way, did you know there's actually proof about the resurrection of Jesus? That he was really here and he did rise from the dead? By the way, did you know that this Bible isn't just something that's been taught throughout history? It's God's word and here's how it is God's word and how it was all put together. There's so much proof. So we as Christians need to do our homework and be trained in it so that we can engage in a healthy conversation with our non-believing friends. So what does it take for us as Christians to turn the world upside down? It takes courage. It takes compassion. It takes conversation. And when those things happen, the fourth thing that takes place is it will take conversions. Look at verse 4 in Acts 17. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. God blessed the ministry of Paul and Silas as they were reasoning with the people in the synagogues. And not only were many Jews come to faith, not only did they come to faith, but also others came to faith. That's what happens when we run to the roar. God blesses the ministry, and all of a sudden we begin to see lives change for the good, and we see societies change for the good. But it's all by the grace of God. Later on in the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul had left the city in Acts 17, and he goes on different journeys. Months later, he ends up writing a letter to the church of Thessalonica, and this is what he said about them. He said, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. After Paul went to Thessalonica and he saw these people change for the good, Word got out about these people and how not only were they changed, but they began to change their city, they began to change their environment, they began to change the world. This church that Paul ministered to in Thessalonica became a missionary church. It became a sending church where they had incredible impact throughout the region. They had impact because they received the word of God with joy And they also ran to the roar. 
and told their brothers and sisters about this great Jesus. Because of that, God blessed it. This week I was reading about an imaginative story. I just want you to use your imagination because this actually didn't happen. But this story described how after Jesus rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven. And when he ascended into heaven, there was a big party with he and the angels saying, Jesus, you just won. You just defeated death. And one of the angels uh, asked Jesus, Lord, now that you're in heaven, how will the people that you left on the world, uh, in the world, how would they hear about what you've done for them? And Jesus answered one of the angels saying, well, my disciples will tell them. And then another angel just timidly raised his hand and said, okay, Jesus, uh, what if your disciples don't tell them? What other plans do you have? And Jesus answered that angel saying, I have no other plan. I know this was a made up story, but the point of the matter is this. We are the plan. You are the plan. God has a plan to rock this world, to turn this world right side up because it's already upside down because of sin. How do we turn this world right side up? We go and make disciples of all nations. That is the plan. Simple as that. Jesus gave us his mandate, his mission. He said, my plan is for you, disciple, to go and make disciples of all nations, telling them about me. If we don't do our plan, we won't see change. If we don't execute this plan, we will not see change, but we'll only see things get worse. We are the plan. And as we go out in faith, as we roll up our sleeves, and as we make contact with non-believers and love them, I truly believe we'll be seeing conversion. We'll also be seeing positive change. But until we do that, things will only get worse because we're the plan. The fifth thing that happens for us to turn the world upside down is it will take criticism. There will be conflict. As Christians get into the world and run to the roar with courage, as we show compassion to our neighbor, as we have conversation with them and conversions take place, guess what also will happen? Criticism will happen. More conflict will occur. This happens, this has happened throughout all of history. Think about the early church. When all these people in the early church became Christians, guess what happened? Well, there was a lot of opposition that developed. And Christians ended up losing their lives because of the opposition. It was fierce. Think about in the Reformation era when the Catholic church went against the reformers. They persecuted the reformers because the reformers were standing on truth. Think about today how there are many people, even within the church, who are compromising their convictions, they're compromising the truth and going way left and they're pointing fingers at us evangelical Christians. And that group will only get louder. The noise will get louder if we execute the plan that God has given us. It's part of it because after all, Jesus said, the world will hate you 
he also said, if you strive to be godly, you will be persecuted. So if you want to help turn this world right side up because it's already turned upside down because of sin, expect persecution. Expect more criticism. Expect the noise to get a little louder. That's what happens when revival takes place. And when we see it in Acts 17, verse 5, it said, The Jews were jealous. They took some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar. They attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. More conflict took place. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. What happened here is the Jewish leaders couldn't stand the fact that Paul and Silas were were having great success in the Lord Jesus. They got very upset to the point of forming a group of thugs, a mob, to go in and do business and take these two down. When they get to Jason's house, who was housing Paul and Silas, they couldn't find Paul and Silas, so what they did was they dragged Jason, the host of the home, they dragged him out before the city officials, and they made a false accusation against Paul and Silas. And they said, these men who've turned the world upside down, they have defied the decrees of Caesar by speaking about Jesus. Now, even though some of that was true, Paul and Silas were talking about Jesus being the Lord, the one true king, they weren't stirring up a rebellion against Caesar. But these Jewish leaders were trying to be very sneaky by making false accusations and slanderous accusations against Paul and Silas, saying, oh, these men, they are forming a revolt, a rebellion against Caesar. The reason that these Jewish leaders came up with this accusation was they thought they were going to win the crowd over. Because who would want to join a rebellion against Caesar? This is what happens when Christians take a stand. The noise will get louder. Opposition will grow. Criticism will occur. False accusations will take place. Even slanderous accusations. If we're doing our job. So my question to you is, has any of this happened to you? If it hasn't, you might not be doing your job. (laughs) But this is the hard part of the job, right? But if we as Christians want to turn the world upside down, we've got to accept criticism to take place. It's just par for the course. So my question to you is, do you want to be people of impact? Do you want to be people who turn the world upside down, just like Paul and Silas did? If you do... It takes you to be courageous. It takes you to have compassion. It takes conversation with our non-believing friends and enemies. It will lead to conversion. It will also result in more criticism and conflict. But don't let that get you down. Instead, remember you're the plan that God has to build his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. As I said earlier, you should have received this handout that describes our strategic plan. 
And in the plan, it describes our ministry strategy that we want to become a church that clearly impacts the community within a 20-mile radius through lifestyle evangelism, life-changing discipleship, multiple outreach opportunities, counseling and supportive ministries, and church planning with an emphasis on attracting young families and the non-Christian. Despite a pandemic that has wreaked havoc on all of our lives and churches, we have seen God prove faithful time and time again. And just for a moment, I want to share with you how first we were able to create, as you heard from Ray Morgan earlier, a lifestyle evangelism plan. And we've already trained most of our leadership through this material. We would love to train you through this material and this material. If you want to be trained in it, please see me, Ray Morgan, talk to my assistant, Jan Dahl. We can get you trained in this material. It's only 14 pages, and it helps you have a good dialogue with non-believers. We just want to get this word out, and we want to get you trained in it. The second thing that the Lord has done for us as a church is right now we have had 52 people either have completed this this past year or have gone through our discipleship curriculum. This curriculum, we believe, will help you develop a mind for truth, a heart of passion for life and for others, and hands of service. And so if you would like to learn more about the discipleship program, our goal is to get 10% of our membership through it annually through the end of 2023. We've almost met that goal for this past year, and we hope to meet it for next year. So we need at least 55, 60 of you to go through this this year. Please sign up for that. The third thing that the Lord has done is through the efforts and leadership of David Forbes and our outreach ministry team, we were able to plan and execute 56 service projects in our community. We don't just want to be a church that cares for each other. We want to care for our city, our community. So we organized 56 service projects in our community just this past year. You heard about Renew Clinic. There's an opportunity for you to learn more about Renew Clinic and how you can help to serve those who are addicted to drugs, alcohol, or opioids. T.K. Heineman and Jennifer Rokiski are members of this church or part of this church, and they are on staff at Renew Clinic. They will have a table in the lobby. Please go and meet them. Please thank them for what they do and ask how you can help. We also have increased our partnerships. This year, we added a few more partners locally. One is with Focus Prison Ministry to help with those who are incarcerated. The other that ministry we're partnering with is Street Hope, which helps those who are victims of sex trafficking. We're now coming alongside of that ministry. When it comes to global outreach, I'm pleased to say, and Andy Halbert just told me this, by the end of this month, which ends our financial fiscal year, we would have brought in over $300,000 towards global missions. That is the most in our 26-year history as a church. My friends, this is during a pandemic. We need to praise the Lord for that one. $300,000 that goes to help support our 25 missionaries who are doing incredible work for the kingdom of the Lord throughout the world. We've also uh, increased our partnerships, just uh, had a family that we supported, a young family that's going to Kazakhstan, I believe, and um, we, a year and a half ago, you helped raise, during our Christmas Eve offering, some money to build an orphanage in Ghana, and I wanted to show you the two buildings that are being built. 
This is in Ghana. It's now housing 25 children, three staff members, and one security guard. Thank you for your gifts to help build these two orphanages. Now for exciting news, what's to come? Each year in these three years, your leadership has one big goal that we want to accomplish every year. Last year, the big goal was Renew Clinic, and I'm pleased to say that we were able to put in over $70,000 to start that ministry. We have many of you who've been trained volunteers who are on staff or serving on the board. Thank you for that. This year, our major goal is to build a counseling center. If you've never been on this side of our building, right behind the offices, in one of our main entrances during the week here, there is a huge area that is not finished. It's not complete. It's called the warehouse. Well, your church leaders, we want to build a counseling center in the warehouse with four offices so Jim Cofield can build a great counseling center for us to help our people and our community. And we also want to build a large classroom because as we grow, we're going to need classroom space. We're going to have a classroom built. And because Chris Blake does such a good job of videos, we're going to give him a little studio as well. So you're going to be hearing more about this campaign. Our goal is to build the counseling center, classroom, and studio by the end of 2022. The good news is we have a sizable amount of money to contribute towards it. We're still going to have to raise some of it, but not all of it. Because we have a good reserves fund to help support some of this. So you're going to be hearing more about that in the near future. And our goal is by the end of 2022 to have this thing built and to hire a female counselor under Jim and perhaps another counselor. And finally, by the end of 2023, our goal is to plant a church. We don't just want to build a big church here. We want to build a big church around the world. And so our desire is to plant multiple churches in the future. But by the end of 2023, our desire is to bring in a pastor, a church planter, who will then get several of you to join him and to go somewhere in our community and plant a church that is needed. We don't know the location yet. We don't know the pastor. But you will get to know him, and you will get to know the location, hopefully sometime in the end of next year. But our goal is by the end of 2023 is to plant a church. Do you want to be people of impact? I know I do. And I can't thank you enough for all of your efforts. But to me... We're merely scratching the surface. I believe and I truly believe that we are on the brink of something special here at Christ's Covenant. 